Who's your neighbor? If the first greatest commandment we know is love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and mind, and the second greatest commandment is love your neighbor as yourself, then I think we need to ask the question, who is our neighbor? Now, I was born in 1947 B.C. <laughs> C. C. That means 1947 before cell phones, computers, and cable TV. But if you lived in an inner city or grew up in an inner city, perhaps your neighbors were those who lived in the projects or lived in your apartment building. And you know maybe somebody that on the first floor or second floor above or below you. That was pretty much your, your neighborhood. It's who you knew. If you lived in the outskirts of the city, you probably knew those that were living beside you or across the street from you or maybe another street over, you would consider them your, your neighbors. If you lived in the country, as I did most of my growing up years, your neighbor could be three-quarters of a mile, a half a mile, a mile away, and you wouldn't see them very often, uh, oftentimes out doing the harvesting or planting or working in the fields. As you drive by, you toot the horn and wave and and, and those were people that we consider to be our neighbors. Well, you are aware that social media has enlarged the neighborhood. And now we get on social media and, and live, instantly, we can see our neighbors to the north, our neighbors to the south. We can see our neighbors who've experienced the ravishings of a tsunami. We can see our neighbors who experienced the devastation of earthquakes. We can see those who have experienced the floodings in Texas and the tornadoes in the Midwest and the wildfires in California. And just at an instant, our neighborhood has exploded. So if we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, let me ask you again, who is your neighbor? There's a scripture in Luke that I want to share with you this morning as a basis for just a few moments of, of, of kind of setting this up for Samantha. So let's put the scripture on the screen today. On one occasion, an expert in the law, that tells you something right there. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, and how do I read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus went on to share a parable of the Good Samaritan, one that we've heard over and over and over again. It's a story about a man who had been beaten, he'd been robbed, he had been left alongside the road, and nobody was taking care of him. The priest came along, and the Levite 
came along. The so-called religious leaders of the day. And it says not only did they walk by, but they walked by on the other side of the road. And, and that kind of tells me that they didn't even bother to go on and look at the extent of his injuries or to really see what was happening. But they walked on the other side of the road. And then the Samaritan came along. And not only did he take care of the man, but he picked him up and he took him to a place and paid for all of his medical expenses, paid for his care, paid for his overnight stay, as long as it took for him to recover. So Jesus turns back to this expert in the law, and he said, so which one of these do you think was a good Samaritan. Which one of these do you think was considered a neighbor? And the expert in the law could not even say the word Samaritan. Because at that particular time, a Samaritan was a religious and social half-breed despised by the Jews. And the only thing the man could say was, the one who showed mercy on the man. And Jesus said, good answer. And then he gave him four words, go and do likewise. We have come here today, and today is a special day with our emphasis with children. But we've come here today to ask ourselves the question, who is our neighbor? And we understand that this man, the priest and Levi went along. They, they had an awareness. They knew the man was injured. They had access to the man to take care of him, and they had the ability, they had the wherewithal to really probably provide everything that he needed. Awareness, access, and ability. So now we come to this place where we are looking at in July, networking with OCY, you heard Joel give us the numbers. There is a potential of 90-some kids that we can have an impact on. We can make a difference. And we are here today, and I have to say to you that you are now being made aware of what we can do that you now have access to what we can do, and you have the ability to whether you give, whether you serve, whether you volunteer, the awareness, the access, and the, and the ability is, is here. But here's another question. When you think of the kids at OCY, do you take them as to be for that week, our kids? Or are they someone else's child? See, let me give you three, three illustrations that will, will kind of bring this home. You, you pick up a newspaper, you turn to TV, you Twitter, you Instagram, whatever you do, and you hear about all the devastation and the refugees and the displaced kids, and, and they, you see the pictures and the malnutrition and and your, your response is one of sadness. I, I feel sad for them. But you probably won't respond beyond that. Now, 
let me give you this. When you hear that more children die in car accidents every year than any other type of death, children die every year, you have this feeling of sadness, but probably no response. Then you get a call that your neighbor's child was just killed in a car accident. Now you not only feel sad, but there's probably some emotions attached to that because you've watched this child in your neighborhood play and even with your children. And so now not only do you feel sad, but you become emotional and now you respond to say, we've got to get over there and find out what we can do to help our neighbors. Because this has to be a tough time for them. Now, whether you're at home or work, and I know I hesitated on this because it probably would come across a little morbid or a downer, but it makes a point, so stay with me. Now you get a call from work that your child, has been killed in a car accident. You go from sad to devastation at warp speed. Everything in your life comes to a stop. Nothing is more important than your child. Accompanied with the grief and the sorrow and the loss of your child, you just, you, you just lose all ability to think because it now becomes personal. The children in America that die in car accidents were not personal. The neighbor's child that was killed in a car accident, as tragic as it was, really was not personal. But now you got the call. It's your kid. And it becomes personal. And sometimes that's how we treat outreaches and we treat things that we do. You will sit here, and I heard, I heard you, I heard you when Joel told us the numbers went from 900 and some to 1,300, and I heard the, oh, but those are someone else's kids, not mine. So what's our challenge this morning? I believe that all three of these illustrations, the heart of God was touched by every child killed in an accident, by the neighbor's child killed in an accident, your child killed in an accident, touched the heart of God. And I believe there are 92, 93 reasons why we need to expand our thinking. And our neighbor no longer is that person beside us or that person across the street from us, but now our neighbor becomes 92 kids. That as, as you will hear Samantha in just a moment, 
I went home and my wife and I were talking last night. I, I can't imagine. Kids and Samantha is one of hundreds of thousands that go through this. That, that come up this way. And yet, because there was someone that caught a vision, because there was a team that said, we'll take a week. And some of our folk, I got to tell you, I mean, sacrifice, they, they sacrifice a week of vacation. They take unpaid leave. They do these things because they recognize the insignificance and the importance of investing in the lives of children. See, for you and I, the love of self is instinctive and involuntary. The love for self just comes natural. But the love for others is something that has to be disciplined and something that we have to ask God to put on our heart. So today, we are here this morning by faith believing that we can do 92 kids. And it, it isn't just that we need the finances to do that, but we need the volunteers to do that. But wouldn't it be a great legacy? Wouldn't it be a great... Talk about church branding. And, and what is Erie First known for? Wouldn't it be great that in the community, you meet somebody and they say, yeah, I know... I've heard about that church. Every summer, they take children for a week and love on them and give them birthday presents and minister to them and pray for them and love on them some more. And now, over the years, people much like Samantha is now coming to share how that what people have invested in their lives, now they're seeing a reward. So here's what we want to do. I want to introduce her to you this morning, and then I'm going to direct your attention to the screen because there's a Samantha story video, and then following that, she's just going to come up and begin to share. But uh, I met her for the first time last night, and Megan, her friend, her sidekick, her compadre that's come along, and they have a whole other story of how they got here. <laughs> That was a test within itself. Samantha, I want you to stand this morning, and we want to welcome you to Erie First Assembly. Can we let her know that we're glad that she's here? Thank you so much. Now, with that great round of applause, that means there's great expectations when you come on the platform. So we want you to draw, take your attention to the screens and watch the video, and then Samantha is going to come and share with us this morning. For over two decades, Royal Family Kids has been confronting abuse and changing lives. They serve children who have been neglected, children who have been the innocent victims of every type of abuse imaginable. Royal Family Kids has introduced hope into the story of thousands and thousands of children of abuse. This is Samantha's story. Someone called to get me out of my house, and I have no idea who it was. All I know is the police showed up at the door with social workers and caseworkers, and um, I don't know who called. And I was like, it was an angel then. You know, God was, was there with me, and he was like, okay, it's time for this to end. And he made someone feel compassionate enough to call 
and that's how I was saved. If Samantha had not been taken out of her um, original home, she probably would have wound up dead at some point, and nobody would have known and nobody would have missed her because nobody knew about her. Samantha was considered to be the worst case of abuse um, in Greene County, Missouri. I was abused from five to eight. So at five, most kids don't remember a lot. But from what happened to me, I remember just about everything. Memories of um, what my dad's did to me. You could tell she had been an abused kid. She has lo had lots of scars on her body. Her hair was really messed up, very tiny, had been malnourished. I never knew um, what was going to happen, when was going to happen. So I was scared most of the time. Samantha had to use liquid soap if she wanted to brush her teeth. She had to eat on the floor. When she was thirsty and didn't want the parents to hear the water running, she took off the back of the toilet and scooped up water in the back of the toilet to drink. When I'd be taken to the basement to get beaten, I'd be like, am I gonna get out of here alive? So there's still times in life where like something happens or someone says something and it just like hits me and it's just like a slap in the face. When I first met her at camp, um, she never smiled. There was nothing happy in my life, so why would I need to be smiling for anything? By the end of the week of camp, she was smiling. We have pictures of her smiling, uh, which was just an amazing change. You know, it was the best week of my life, my summer. For the first time in eight years, I had fun, and I was treated like a normal kid. These were the very first of my life. I don't remember any time in the past where I was given a gift. She had never um, been swimming. She had never been fishing. She, just a lot of things that she had never done before. And she was very eager um, to participate in all the activities. But these are the first where you're just extremely happy. And um, 10 years later, I still remember them. And this camp is important. It does change lives. We're, we're there to touch these kids, but at the same time, these kids touch our hearts as well. my name He knows my every thought He sees each tear that falls and hears me when I call Samantha was just like on the, the edge of her seat just waiting for the opportunity to come back to camp um, and to serve. I get to be a counselor for the first time, and I am so excited. I cannot wait till 10. This is my chance to make a difference in their life. Never going to camp would completely have changed my life. You know, I wouldn't be where I am today. I wouldn't be with the family I was. You know, that's where I met my mom. She fell in love with me there. I think a week can make an amazing difference um, in a child's life. If Samantha hadn't have gone to royal family, I just wonder, would she have the hope? Would she have the successes? Would she have the achievement? And not going to camp, would I still be bouncing from foster family to foster family? Um, would I have ended up, you know, on the streets, running away without camp, you know? Life would completely be different. I think God saw Samantha, he looked down on this little girl, and I think he just, um, I think he has intervened. Um, she was a child that should have had 
so many difficulties, so, so many problems, so many disorders to overcome. And to look at where she was and where she is today, I mean, God's just done a huge work in her life. Good morning. Um, it is so great to be with you this morning. Um, Megan and I have had a great time here in Erie. And I'd just like to share with you more about what camp is like from my perspective, from being a camper and now going back and working as a volunteer. Um, so I was born in Detroit, Michigan, and life was great until I was six months old. And um, we lived up north, so it was cold, and I had two older siblings. They took me downstairs to play with me in the basement, and then they decided to go upstairs. So they put me by a space heater to keep me warm. Well, they left, and it exploded, and I got third-degree burns on the back of my head, part of my shoulder, and my back. And it, it was said to be accidental, but my parents never took me to the hospital to get treated, and they waited about a month before someone noticed and called a hotline number. And then we were placed in foster care for the first time, and we lived in foster care for three years before moving back with our parents. And... I don't remember that part of my life, but it was good. I, I know that my siblings have told me that they loved me and we played all the time together. And then we went back with our parents and things changed. I no longer was the youngest child. There were two more kids, um, so there's five of us. And then I wasn't getting to play with my siblings. And I was four years old. I should have been playing with Barbie dolls or baby dolls. Instead, I was helping my mom clean the house. And then it just turned into me cleaning the house by myself. And by the age of four and a half, I could clean the house from scrubbing the floors to doing the laundry to doing the dishes. And I kind of just was serving my family in that aspect. And then after that, my dad started to sexually abuse me when my mom was gone. And he said, if you love me, you're going to let me do this to you. And I knew nothing else. So I was afraid of him, and I let him do what he wanted. And then as we got older and we moved from Green Bay to Springfield, Missouri, things just continued to get worse. Uh, my mom used food as a punishment. Uh, I was very malnourished. I would go anywhere from three to seven days without eating. Um, I survived a month on Gatorade powder and toilet water just because I needed something to eat because my mom said, you're not good enough to eat my food that I pay for. You're not good enough to sleep in a bed, so I'm going to put you in a dog cage. You're not good enough for me, so you're going to stand downstairs when the family is together because you're not one of my children. Not only did my parents hate me, but my siblings hated me as well. They didn't talk to me unless they told me to go make them food or to go clean up a mess they made. My family hated me, my siblings hated me, and I began to hate me too, because I was like, I'm not good enough. They don't want me in this family, so why am I here? Why am I still alive? And there were many times when I was in the dog cage or downstairs, I just wondered, what are, when are they just going to kill me? When is it going to be too much for me to handle? And then things changed. I was eight years old, and it was a Friday afternoon, and I had just finished doing the dishes in the kitchen, and the doorbell rang. And we're a poor family. We didn't really have friends. 
And I was like, okay, who's at this house right now? My mom answered the door, and it was caseworkers from Department of Family Services. And over the course of six hours, police officers came in and out of the house, interviewing my siblings, my parents, myself, and they interviewed me twice, one to ask questions, one to take pictures. And I cried both times because they go, do you feel safe in your house? Obviously, the answer is no. But I was told to tell them, yes, I love my family. I feel safe. When asked why I have bruises, it, you tell them, I like to beat myself to draw attention to me. I don't want my siblings to be noticed. No child should be saying things like that. It's not normal. Then they asked me, like, do you attend school? Like, what grade are you in? And I didn't go to school because I was always covered with bruises and scars, which would lead to questions, which would lead to us being placed into foster care again. And my mom didn't want that. So after six hours of interviews and meeting all of these people, they decided to take all seven of us kids into foster care. And technically, they were only supposed to take me. I was the only child abused in the home, but they decided that if it was so bad for me, that if I was gone, they would do it to one of the other kids. You can't just stop living four years of your life, beating one child, have them leave, and then just, just magically be okay. So we, play, we were placed into foster care. And my first placement, I was there for one month. And I just remember enjoying my time with them. I got breakfast every day. It was a choice of bagels or cereal or donuts. And I always went with the donuts. It was new. Um, I got to play with animals for the first time and watch TV and kind of start to feel like a normal kid. But I was wondered, when am I going back to my family? I don't belong here. They don't love me like they should. They decided to move me from that foster home to a new foster home where they wanted me to live with my older sister. And that was great because I had missed my siblings. I hadn't seen them in a month, and I worried about them. Even though they hated me, I cared about them because I could protect them if I was with them. And so they put me with my sister, and we fought because I knew that she couldn't control me. She couldn't hit me when she wanted to. She couldn't tell me to give her my food. I could finally say no. I had a voice. And she didn't understand that. And I never blamed her for that. But we just fought. And then our foster mom decided to put us into school. So my sister went to third grade. And I should have been going into second grade. But because I had never gone to school, we did all the kindergarten testing and an IQ test. And I failed. I, my IQ was in the low 80s. I could not spell Sam, which is short for Samantha. I couldn't even count to 10. So they're like, obviously she can't go to second grade. So they decided to put me into kindergarten. Well, there's only two, week, two months left of kindergarten. And in those two months, I ended up going to speech therapy. Uh, I had a therapist that came to the school. I was in Title I reading. And I had a math tutor. And so instead of going to recess, I did all of these other fun things that the other kids didn't get to do. <laughs> At the end of kindergarten, they decided, hey, you can graduate and go to first grade. But since you're a special ed student, you're going to come to summer school. 
So during the summer school, I pretty much did kindergarten all over again, learning my ABCs, counting to 100, learning my shapes. It was all new to me, but it was very exciting. It was something that no one had offered to me before, and so I caught on quickly. Well, at the end of summer school, um, I get home to my foster family, and my foster mom goes, hey, you're going to camp on Monday instead of going to school. And at this point, I was like, okay, no school. That's great. It's a break. But what exactly is camp? And she couldn't really explain camp to me because she didn't know. And I thought it was just, they're sending me away because she doesn't want me. It's a place for them to send kids that are unloved and not wanted to be part of a family. But I was completely wrong. Monday came, I get on the bus to camp, and these kids are jumping up and down. I was like, what is going on? Like, who are you? And it's a two-hour bus ride, and I'm just watching all the kids. And my sister's on the bus, but she's sitting five rows away. She doesn't want to see me. She doesn't want people to know we're together. So she ignores me when I go, hey, hey, are you okay? She doesn't want to talk. So I'm nervous in the back of the bus, wondering what camp's like. And we roll up to the campground, and there's all these adults standing outside, jumping up and down with a sign with my name on it. Someone had taken their time to write out Samantha. That was the first time someone did that for me. And I was like, okay, maybe it's going to be good. Maybe they want me. And over the course of the week, I had the best week of my entire life at eight years old. I went swimming for the first time. I didn't go to camp with a bathing suit, so they provided a bathing suit for me. And someone took time to teach me how to swim. Um, when I went to bed, someone prayed with me so I didn't have nightmares about my dad or my mom. During the week, I learned how to smile, as in this picture. Um, I learned how to love other people and accept love. Um, they told me that, hey, we have a talent show, so you can do whatever you want. I was like, um, I don't have a talent. I'm not special. And so they spent the week preparing me to find something of interest. So I decided to sing. I cannot sing, but it's okay. They, steer, they still cheered for me as if any kid had sung the best song possible. We have a birthday party, and we got birthday gifts. And the last time I received a gift, I was supposed to give it away to my siblings. It wasn't meant for me. So at camp, they're like, hey, happy birthday, Samantha. Here's your bag. I was like, okay, that's cool. Let me look at my toys. And then I tried to walk it over to my sister because that's who I'm supposed to give my stuff to. And my counselor goes, no, like, you can keep this. I was like, wait, wait, wait. This is mine? Like, I can keep this? She said, yes, this is for you. And it was a yellow teddy bear. I'm 22 years old, and I still have that teddy bear. Because it was the first gift I had ever received. And it was a gift out of love. And it just made an impact for me. Um, after camp, I received my little booklet of pictures and when I went back to my foster home, I would flip through them almost every day, remembering what it was like to be a normal kid, to feel love, and to be told, hey, you're beautiful, you have worth, and God is going to use you to make a difference. I'd never really known who God was or the love he could offer huh? until I was in my third foster home, which is with the Orr family. We ended up living in the same small town in Missouri, and um, we would see each other at baseball games when I played. 
And Dr. Orr decided, hey, like, I love her. She needs a family. I have a family. Let's see if she can come in. So my parents did the foster parenting classes, and I started to live with them. And then in October, uh, I'm in first grade, and I'm bouncing between two foster homes, trying to get used to a new family, but still living with my sister. And here is a picture of my ninth birthday, which was really my first real birthday as an or. Um, and they took time to make a cake and get SpongeBob because that was the best TV show at the time. <laughs> and I, it was fun. I had friends there and I had my family there and I had people that liked me and loved me. And finished first grade living with the Ors. And at the end of first grade, um, they had a uh, special education meeting for an, IP, an IEP student. And they decided, what are we going to do with Samantha? She's still two grades behind. She's not excelling in anything she does, but she's getting older, and this is going to affect her when she gets to middle school. So they decided, and it ended up being like a two-hour meeting, for me to skip second grade. Um, they said it wasn't going to help. Learning phonics would not be important in my life because I would be a C-average student. I wouldn't succeed. I wouldn't go to college. They told my mom, don't expect her to do much with her life. And so they let me skip second grade, carried on to th through school, still went to speech and Title I reading, and had tutors. And then um, fourth grade, October 27th, 2004, I became an OR. They adopted me into their family. Um, it, it was my, my adoptive brother's birthday, and he goes, this is the best birthday present I could have ever gotten. And when I was 11, that made me feel like, he really wanted me as a sister. Like, that was a good thing. Um, when I was taken into care, I was the worst case of abuse in Greene County uh, in Missouri, and um, still am to this day from 2002. But my family, we were the first family of seven to be adopted into different homes on the same day. Uh, normally, it's two or three kids, and our caseworkers knew it was important for us to share that memory if we were never going back home. So we all have a text that goes around, hey, happy adoption day, because it's so special to us. Because we had our family, but then we had our new families that loved us. Lived with the Oars. Um, they have shaped me into who I am today. I'm a lot like them. I'm competitive, slightly outgoing, um, and very active in sports and school. And because of them, they pushed me to succeed. Even if I was, they were told, don't expect much from her, they expected much from me because they knew I could do it. They knew I could achieve. So I graduated high school Valley Victorian and student body president. Thank you. Um, spoke at graduation and I had my biological family there and I had my adoptive family there. And it was a great day. Um, I'm now at Evangel University. I'm a junior studying high school math. Entered school having a math tutor, now I'm going to be a math teacher. <laughs> Comes for a circle. Um, my biological family, as you see there, we still get together. Our foster families, uh, when they wanted to adopt us, they knew it would be important for us to stay in contact with each other. And so we get together twice a year uh, to celebrate the positives in our lives. 
and now we're all getting older. The youngest one is in eighth grade, and he'll be going into high school next year. Um, and it's just great to see them and see where their lives are going. But this is all about camp, and my family now, um, I got my family because of camp, because my mom worked at camp. She fell in love with me there, and I'm here because camp makes a difference, not just for the kids, but for the adults. Um, this summer is my ninth year working at camp. Um, I've been volunteering since I was 14 years old because I went as three years when I was a kid, and each year I made more memories that I look back on and be like, that's where I learned how to swim. That's where I learned how to write a letter to my sister telling her I loved her even if she didn't love me back. And I learned about Jesus at camp and he has helped me overcome so much. He has helped me to forgive my biological mother and to be able to meet with her face to face and tell her I forgive her and to be able to have contact with her since. Because of camp, I go back and see these kids grow up when they come to camp at seven and leave when they're 11 or 12. You hear their stories and you see how they're changed because of camp, just five days out of an entire year. And you think, does it really matter? Does it really change someone's life? And for me, it really did. It gave me a family. It gave me hope that, one, I'm loved, but hope that my past doesn't define who I am, that I can use the past as a stepping stone for what God has called me to do with my life. And I'm here because he's using me to speak on the behalf of the kids that can't speak for themselves, the campers that can't overcome their nightmares or their past pains. And camp is so vital to changing their lives. Some of them might not show that camp is great, it might not affect them until 10 years down the road. But for anyone that goes to camp, they know that they're making a difference. You might not see what you're doing in their lives, but one day they might come back and work and say, hey, I remember the day you sat me down and said that I was beautiful, that even with my scars, I was beautiful. And you stopped kids picking on me because I had burns, because you thought that I was still beautiful. It really makes an impact on a child that growing up told, you're not loved, no one wants you, you're nothing, to five days where it's all about love and praise and telling these kids that you are going to make a difference in the world. And one day I hope to run a camp. Right now I'm just on the leadership team leading events and working as staff, but I know that my biological siblings have come back to work with me. Three of them will be there this summer. And we are three returner campers that have come back to give our time because we know what it makes to go into camp. My first year going as staff, I was like, okay, like, am I just going to show up and have fun like I did as a kid? But you work and you put in so much time and energy and even your own money to make camp possible that it just kind of realized, like, these people didn't just show up and think of me as a stranger, that they prayed for me a year in advance. They took time to write letters and make it the best week possible. And as a staff, you realize that you are truly loved by these people. And I had been in the church with these people that had gone to camp with me, and 
two days at camp, I just went up to them. I was like, thank you for giving your time, for taking time away from work, from school, from your family, to devote it to my life. When it seemed so insignificant to you at the time, it was changing my life right then. So you might think that camp is for other people, it's not for you, Um, but you can pray. Um, You can always pray for the staff and the kids. There's a lot of things at camp that are unplanned. You have to be very flexible when you get there, and prayer helps with that. Uh, You can give of your time volunteering. Um, Camp's not possible without volunteers or with money. I went to camp for three years. I could have gone my fourth year, but our church did not have the money. And so I didn't get to have my final year at camp. I didn't get to see my best friend again. And I haven't seen her since I was 10 years old. But my middle name is Brianna because she was my first best friend. And I wanted to have her remembrance as I got older to share that memory of camp with my life. Uh, So Pastor Don talked about who's your neighbor. To me, my neighbor was Dr. Orr. She took her week of summer to come and spend her time loving on kids that I thought didn't deserve it. And she was my neighbor. Now she's my mother. And that makes a complete difference. So thank you for hearing my story and for having me here today.